Welcome to episode 24 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now the sun aches over the tree line this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no-mooned night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. It's Thursday the 14th of April, Maundy or Holy Thursday in the Christian tradition. It's Ramadan. Muslims all over the world are fasting. In the Jewish tradition we're coming up on the sacred festival of Passover. So it's an important time in the religious world, in the spiritual world. In the natural world it's spring. New life is breaking out in this hemisphere all over the place. New lambs are in the fields, daffodils are nodding their heads all around where I live. On this day, I've just listened to the British Prime Minister announce that in the name of compassion and the values of the United Kingdom, if someone who is male makes it to this country across the channel, bedraggled, probably in a a boat that they've paid people smugglers for. They're so desperate to come here in the name of compassion and the values of this country, as he said. They will be picked up by the armed forces, the Navy or the army, and then put on a plane and sent to Rwanda. Rwanda, thousands of miles away, where the average salary is £11 a week, where in the 1990s there was a genocide, where there are still questions about human rights. That's where, in the name of compassion and the values of the United Kingdom, we are deciding to send young men. I feel a deep contrast in this 
with what I experience on a weekly basis at the social cafe that I volunteer at. It's offered to people with mental health difficulties, things like PTSD, anxiety and depression. And we have a couple of people there from the Yemen who are highly traumatised by what's been going on there. Thousands and thousands of people being killed every week. Rather like what's now broken out in Ukraine. We also have a young man who's just come, an asylum seeker, from Syria. He's Kurdish. And the things that have happened to him are unspeakable. I don't think I've ever met anyone. He's the same age as my son Tom, who's 26, more traumatised. You look into his eyes and you see pain, trauma, the desire to be cared for, the need for kindness. And all that we all experience with him is the desire to make him feel safe. This podcast is prefaced by that because I want to talk or read to you pieces about how people have faced the mangling and the taking hostage of language to say things with language that are so against what the language is telling you that it just ruins the words that they say. I recently had a dream. Dreams are very important to me. And in the dream, at one point, my wife and I were in a hospital. And there was a very traumatised young man. This is before I met the man at the social cafe. And we were really upset about this and went to confront this uh, woman who seemed to be in charge of everything and she denied that this man was traumatised and in the dream it was as if I could see her soul draining out of her it was as if she was standing on blotting paper and her soul drained out of her and blotted into the earth And then she started to use incredibly racist language. And I was incandescent and stood before her and her committee and I denounced it all. And they used the fact that we were about to be at war, which was actually true. I hadn't realised that at the time when I had the dream. The fact that they were at war, they couldn't afford the process of looking after this person. And I said, we would all fight to protect the nation. And in that cause, we would be happy to die. But we would not be sacrificed on the altar of lies. Dreams are funny things, aren't they? You become become very um, loquacious at times in dreams. Um, And when I spoke to my therapist about the dream, she said, when... 
where does that language come from in you? This this about the sacrificed on the altar of lies. And I remembered that when I was at university studying for the priesthood in the late 80s, I became really interested in Russian poetry. I read um, Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak during a really hard winter in about 1987. First time I'd ever known such a hard winter in London. My toilet froze in my council flat um, and there were icicles hanging off the tube stations. Um, and it was all very romantic. I loved the novel. It's a really powerful, it's a powerful film, the David Lean film, but the novel is phenomenal. And um, I was very taken with it and with the fact that Dr. Shivago, Yuri Shivago, is a poet in the story, as was Boris Pasternak. And the, the, the whole story shows how the juggernaut of history rides roughshod over the lives of the characters in the book. It's very interesting that the word Shivago in the Russian Bible, where in the resurrection the angel says, why do you seek for the living one among the dead? The living one is Shivago. And Larissa, who is the female character in the book, who Yuri falls in love with at one point, Larissa is like a figure of Russia. Um, and she is lost at the end of the book and her daughter is swept away by the Stalinist regime. And I was really fascinated by this and started reading other Russian poets, Osip Mandelstam and um, Anna Akhmatova and Maria Svets... I can never say this properly, Svetaya. Uh, and of course Pasternak and I read all kinds of biographies and read their poetry and their poetry is very simple it's deceptively simple full of powerful natural images um, in the teeth of terrible persecution and and funnily enough I've recently had Covid um, I'm, I'm recovering. I'm pretty tired, but I'm recovering. Uh, and it gave me a chance to read and watch some television. And I watched a film with Emily Watson that rekindled all this again for me. It was called um, Stalin Reign of Terror. I don't think it's a great title. It doesn't tell you really what it's about. It's about this amazing woman, Evgeny Ginsberg, a Jewish intellectual academic who is completely supportive of the revolution, in fact, is a member of the Communist Party, very active. Um, but when Stalin starts to become paranoid, she falls foul of the KGB, or the NKBD as it was called then, and is investigated and stripped of her professorship, and finally is arrested, shipped off to Siberia, one of her children dies, I think her husband dies. Um, and she wrote this incredible book called Into the Whirlwind because she survives. 
and she is rehabilitated in modern Russia. And during the film, there's a bit where she keeps quoting this poem by Osip Mandelstone. What shall I do with the body I've been given? She keeps saying it. What shall I do with the body I've been given? So much at one with me, so much my own. For the quiet happiness of breathing, being able to be alive. Tell me to whom should I be grateful? For the quiet happiness of breathing, being able to be alive. Tell me to whom should I be grateful? I am gardener, flower too, and not alone in the world's dungeon. My warmth, my exhalation, one can already see on the window pane of eternity. The pattern printed in my breathing here has not been seen before. Let the moment's condensation vanish without a trace. The cherished pattern no one can efface. Let the moment's condensation vanish without trace. The cherished pattern no one can efface. That was written in 1909. And I was just completely struck by her inner resilience and fortitude. And, and there are points where she completely despairs and, and their life in the camp is, is just awful. And it, it brought me up face to face with what's happening in the world you know, what's happening in Ukraine, what's been happening in Yemen, what's happened in Palestine, what's happened in Syria. The reason people flee from war and persecution. And that these poets, Akmatova, Pasternak, Mandelstam, Svataya, you know, they were right in the teeth of all this and they found ways of of writing, of marshalling words and, and, and the life experience in the words to galvanise people. And they paid, Mandelstam paid the ultimate price for that. They were arrested. There's a great book by his wife, Nazieda, which means hope, and its, its title is Hope Against Hope. And she talks about when he's arrested and he's deported, not deported, he's um, exiled for a while, then brought back, and then exiled again and sent to a camp, and, and how capricious it all was. And, and there, there's a moment where <clears throat> Pasternak writes Dr. Zhivago, not as a critique, just, just as a, a piece of art, telling people what it's like to live through the momentous events that he lived through. Unfortunately, he released it to an Italian publisher. It was going to be published in Russia, but the Italian publisher, I think this is right, went ahead. It got published in the West. The West saw it as an anti-Soviet novel. That was the end of it in, um, in Russia. And Stalin was furious. And at some point, I don't know whether it's that point, but at some point, Boris Pasternak answers the telephone and it's Stalin on the other end saying, why are you doing this? Why are you, you speaking against the Soviet Union, against your country? Um, just the terror that they went through, but their incredible ability to be truthful. So in the last podcast was about truthfulness. It was about that inner reservoir 
that inner tuning fork where you're consonant and congruent with who you are and what you know to be true of life. What shall I do with the body I've been given? So much at one with me, so much my own. For the quiet happiness of breathing, being able to be alive, tell me, to whom should I be grateful? I am gardener, flower too, and not alone in the world's dungeon. My warmth, my exhalation, no one, uh, one can already see on the window pane of eternity. My warmth, my exhalation, one can already see on the window pane of eternity. The pattern printed in my breathing here has not been seen before. Let the moment's condensation vanish without trace. The cherished pattern no one can efface. And here I am. That was written in 1909, reading these lines to you. It's a very powerful medium poetry. But it relies on words. It relies on language. It relies on us having a sense of what that language means. Um, a shared agreement that um, something means what it says it means. Compassion means to suffer with, to be in deep empathy with another human being. And I'm really fearful at the moment, as I was in the late 80s. I remember that we went on a march against student loans. At that time, my generation were all given a grant to study um, at university. If you got into a university, then your fees would be paid by the state, by the local authority, and you got a grant. Um, you got a living allowance in order to get you through university. And mine came from Rotherham Borough Council. Um, and then it was decided this was too expensive um, and the Conservatives thought that, that this was not a sustainable way of, of funding education and um, we didn't think that was a good idea because there was an egalitarianism about the grant and fee-paying system that meant, you know, anyone who wanted to could go to university regardless of their ability to pay a loan back. So we marched and we demonstrated and we wrote to our members of parliament and we lobbied parliament and we were assured and told that, oh no, if anything, there'll be very low interest rates and it won't kick in until you earn a certain amount of money. Oh, don't worry about it. This is a very fair system. Well, today in 2022 in The Guardian, the headline is graduates to be hit with brutal student loan interest rates of up to 12%. And I talked to my friends in America who, when I was on a David White trip, a woman was celebrating because she was 60 and she'd just paid off her student loan. So language matters. And I remember that we, we went on a march, all the students of London and students from all over the country and somehow the march ended up moving toward Parliament when it was sitting, and that's not allowed, apparently. And suddenly police horses appeared, and we were charged by them, and people were arrested, and I thought it was all incredibly exciting. And 
that I was living in Dr. Zhivago. Um, it was kind of scary at the same time. Um, and actually, the night after that, the, the night after the march, we'd, uh, we were having a, a university ball on a boat on the River Thames. And the person who came to sing as the entertainment for that uh, celebration was none other than my wife. That's where we first started to get romantically involved. So it was a bit like Dr. Zhivago in some ways. Suffice to say that Russian poetry got under my skin. And the incredible bravery and resilience of those poets to speak a different kind of truth, a truth that came from deep within them, that was echoed by the world that they experienced, that's that's contained in this poem, What Shall I Do With The Body I've Been Given? So much at one with me, so much my own, for the quiet happiness of breathing, being able to be alive, tell me to whom I should be grateful. I think we've all had that feeling. I'm feeling it more and more as I get older, which is quite odd. I was talking to a couple of friends of mine last night who are all over 60, that <clears throat> you get older and your body aches more and things start going wrong, but also you really start to appreciate, maybe it's because the end of life is coming closer, you really start to appreciate, what shall I do with the body I've been given? So much at one with me, so much my own. How physical we are and how embodied we are, how much we experience life through our physicality, for the quiet happiness of breathing, just sitting, just waking up in the morning, going to bed at night is a massive pleasure to me, um, being able to be alive, tell me to whom should I be grateful, because it isn't a matter of gratitude, I am gardener, flower too, and not alone in the world's dungeon, that sense that 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 inner truthfulness gives that you're not alone somehow that everything around you is speaking to you my warmth my exhalation one can already see on the window pane of eternity that i've made a mark here the pattern printed in my breathing here has not been seen before no one has been like you no one has been here that's like you let the moment's condensation vanish without trace. I'll disappear without trace. But the cherished pattern no one can efface. A life lived. And so I wrote these poems and I, I found the notebook that they were in. And I've rewritten them with the present situation in mind. With what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on across the world, what's going on in this country, what's going on in America, the, the rise of populism and this idea of fake news uh, and alternative facts. The idea that there is a, a left-wing set of facts and a right-wing set of facts and each are equally true. Rather than there is a human factuality, an incarnate, enfleshed way of being in the world that is a pattern that can't be effaced, 
That's what Mandelstam says in that poem. The cherished pattern no one can efface. It is the pattern of being a human being. And there aren't right-wing views of that and left-wing views of that. There are just human views of that. And they're the ones that need to be heard and responded to by political institutions, by all uh, provision and government. It's responding to the human, not not dividing people in a way that, that leaves them fighting one another, despising one another, divide and conquer. So this set of poems that I'm going to read, and, and, and I'll offer some ideas of where they came from as I go along. When I was writing them in the late 80s, I, I did all my revision for my exams in the National Gallery or the British Museum uh, or other art galleries. I just had this idea that if I was learning this stuff in front of things that were really beautiful, when it came to the exam room, which are faceless places, the remembering of the information would be accompanied with the beauty in which I'd learnt it. And it, it kind of worked. I got a reasonable degree. But I, I got very taken with the idea of uh, paintings in an exhibition. So I called the collection of poems some canvases, as if you were walking round an exhibition of um, paintings, of pictures, word pictures. And, um, and then I found this quote in the present time, 2022 and it, it's it starts the the series of poems and the quote is from the amazing uh sky hbo miniseries chernobyl if you haven't watched it it is a very harrowing watch but it's such a powerful program about what it means to be truthful to live in a world where the truth has been murdered and therefore people are murdered. And right at the end, there's a, a scientist called Legasov, who is one of the main figures, who, who is a nuclear scientist. And he says this, when the truth offends, we lie and lie until we cannot even remember it's there. But it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, the debt is paid. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until we cannot even remember it's there. But it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, the debt is paid. So the first canvas is called Dark Room with Freshly Kindled Fire. What will you do now that the meaning hidden behind the words you love is taken and splashed red upon the altars of well-known demagogues? Venerable helpers arrested, chained up, interred in false labour camps, pushed until their lifeless husks Grade and alien, even to their families, distrusted by their friends, are empty and lost shells. 
You painters of written pictures must search for fresh pigments. Mix clean colours, unsullied oils. There are dissident sources in your sleep or in the bright sadness of your losses that are revolutionary. Burst into flame, your fiery blooms springing up, and when they arrive to stamp out the blaze, let your poems be sparks, flares in their night's hearth. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. The central ideas there are uh, the fact that words like compassion or the values of this country are just become meaningless because they're so bent out of shape. So what will we do when that happens? And and for the poets and the artists, you painters of written pictures must search for fresh pigments. We have to find new ways of of expressing that inner truth, what it means to be human. There are dissident sources in your sleep or in the bright sadness of your losses that are revolutionary. Um, A friend of mine who's a a retired priest, she's also um, a a diabetic specialist nurse. We were talking about Ukraine and she, she said, it evokes in me a kind of bright sadness that of grief um, and the brightness was about hope and the sadness was just the the horror of seeing people being treated the way that, that they are being treated. And I, I found it a powerful statement, the bright sadness of your losses that are revolutionary burst into flame. So allow that inner truth to, to speak out of you and that that will be flares in their night's hearth the metaphor is that there's a darkness created by that mangling of words, by the lack of authenticity and integrity that we see so often. Um, and and that somehow we need to amplify the voices that that speak into that darkness so that they are flares in the hearth of the night that that those who would like to act in darkness want to create. The second piece is, is imagining that it <clears throat> you walk round the corner and there's a portrait of Osip Mandelstam and Anna Akhmatova. They were friends. Um, Portrait of Osip Mandelstam and Anna Akhmatova. Don't give up the struggle or stop your ears to the chant of inner cadences. As crimson streaks graffiti on the bullet-pocked wall. We urge you to hone your lines. Let them ring out unsheathed in the city's boulevards. We too hear the synchronised cackle that makes you wriggle, riddled with their venom as the puerile custodians of rightness claim custody, possession of the apparatus of propaganda. 
all the time torturing veracity, perverting authenticity to a shrill monotone of skewedness. But to really write is a tuning fork. The vibration births a tremulous and touching mastery of fear. To outstare the train line from the east until it smokes and plumes your loved one's back, back into the arms of your verse, back though the camp swallowed their gentle-faced flesh. In Russia, people were always sent to the east on trains. And the end of that poem imagines the yearning for those people to come back, back into the arms of of those who, who lost them, like Nazieda Mandelstam, and back into the arms of their verse to be remembered forever. And there's something really powerful to me about the way those poets used their voices. And it's worth painting a portrait of. The next poem uh, comes from when I was uh, studying in London. I spent a lot of time in central London because my college was at the back of Oxford Street. Um, And I used to love going into Soho which at one point was a sort of red light district, but it's always been a really creative place. There's film companies there. There's all sorts going on there, and they're great little cafes. And um, I used to love walking through Soho Square. Crowds in Soho Square. I wander through these Soho streets questioning, am I artist, critic, or just too scared for either title? As night's iron curtain drops, headlights catch me, sirens screeching at me, demanding identity papers. Priests and false prophets ply their trade through the squares, ignorance on sale at every corner. I am like a searchlight, streaming anxiously into the dark corners of old truths, trying to discern a new pattern left in the remnants. In the dark vestibule of the church, the great mother, is cradling her dead son, making my eyes run. You know the pain of bearing, of suffering and enduring. Can you offer some relief to the blind streets, as so many have lost contact with the curative, with the sound of their own soul? There's a little church in the corner called St Patrick's, Catholic Church. I used to love going in there, and there's a pieta, there's a, a, a... Statue of Mary cradling the dead Jesus. And it used to move me deeply looking at it. And that idea of the great mother cradling her dead son, that, that's, been, that's a pattern that's repeated over and over again. And, and she knows the pain of bearing, of suffering and enduring. That reminds me of my grandma and my mother that lived through the Blitz in London. And they would say, you just got on with it. With the, as I say in one of my poems, with the beautiful ordinariness of love. Can you offer some relief to the blind streets where, where people are just lost in the propaganda that is pumped out a lot of the time? And they've lost contact with the curative, 
there's so many people suffering with mental health issues. It's an epidemic. I was talking to someone yesterday who's a cardiologist, but he was saying the hospitals are just full of people with mental health issues. People who've lost contact with the curative, with the sound of their own soul. So the next piece too is dedicated to Soho. Study of feet on Soho streets. This place where Munro and Me Too were handed over for the victorious to crucify them in full view. Though celluloid drips keep prime bodies succulent, verve has been stolen. I am not one of the Miramax men. I'm just slipping past. My scuffed brown shoes feel the pain in the broken paving as the betrayal seeps through. A poet is an outcast from the hard-faced system, feeling each neon bolt, adding tears to each muddy puddle, fleeing from the crass collaboration of affluence and influence. Fearing the framing of empty words, trusting feelings to stir a stark eloquence, needing to plumb depths, sinking their own wells, fresh water that cannot be poisoned, in a deep aquifer, a source beyond their grubby reach. When I was writing that poem originally and thinking of Marilyn Monroe and how people are, are exploited and then their image is always there, but I added, and Me Too, the Me Too movement, <clears throat> and I'm not one of the Miramax men, Miramax was Weinstein's company, the whole exploitation that has gone on in the movie industry, in politics with Jeffrey Epstein, um, just that, that, that affluence and influence and the crucifixions that that creates and the idea that it's trusting feelings to stir a stark eloquence there's always rising up new voices, new films, new stories, sinking their own wells. I, I studied liberation theology and there was a great book by a guy called Gutierrez from Latin America called We Drink From Our Own Wells. And there's just that image at the end that we have to sink our own wells, that we have to find sources that are not in the grubby reach of the those that would exploit them to find emotional, physical, deep aquifers that will feed us. One of the, the ever-present things in most cities, but certainly in London, was, was homelessness. So this next piece is called Two People Asleep in a Doorway. I sift through the refuse bags, searching for new symbols, as their parents have been hijacked, left sitting on the tarmac, no ransom paid. Stale rolls, disposable coffee cups, plastic bottles, tin cans are the consumed icons that come to hand. A recycling is called for, upcycling the discarded truths, giving them refuge like the old recusant priest holes keeping an old faith in the divinity of brokenness. 
It is in the side street cardboard sleep scene that the bread gets broken. Where lips echo the whispers of a thousand rattled bones, urging them to rise and fight on. A couple sleep in the arms of loss, dreaming of a better mooring. Children of new originations, beware the newsline leeches, blood-sucking, belching out their sedating platitudes. Don't be seduced by their fetid hatreds. Love loud into the teeth of the tabloid guns. Let your eyes mirror their instability in your vulnerability. For truly, all the fighting dead will tell you that the bullets of death are blanks. I'm shocked at how heroic a style I wrote in, but I don't think it's inappropriate. I think we're touching here when we look at the poetry of of of, of Russia in the thirties. When when we talk about poetry, we're talking about something heroic. We're talking about a way of articulating our faith uh, in our life as as it's lived rather than as someone tells us we should live it. And that is heroic. Um, one of my first dates with my wife, she always reminds me of, was I invited her to come on the Salvation Army's count of the homeless on the streets of London. They do an actual count. Of, they, they split the city up into areas and people go out and count the actual amount of homeless people rather than trust the figures of the government or whoever's in charge. Uh, and that was, I think, our second date. Um, I really know how to show someone a good time. But, uh, you know, I remember seeing a couple in each other's arms and a couple sleep in the arms of lost dreaming of a better mooring. I remember having a, a a conversation down in what was called the Bullring in Waterloo with a young man who had leukaemia but was sleeping in Cardboard City. And I said to him, why don't, why don't you go to a hostel? Why don't you let someone look after you? And he was like, look, just look round you. These people, when I die, will come to my funeral. They rem- They will remember me. If I go into a hostel, I'll just be a name and a number. And and I don't want anything more than this. And I was really not back on my heels, my sort of middle class uh, do-gooding. And I thought, actually, you know, there's a community being created here of sorts. And who am I to comment on it? But also, you know... Surely, as a society, we can provide better than this. Um, it really challenged me. It is in the side street cardboard sleep scene that the bread gets broken, where lips echo the whispers of a thousand rattled bones, urging them to rise and fight on. It's it's listening to people at the bottom of our societies, people who have the rawest deal, people who have the most need, they're the people that we should build things round, I think. Um, 
And beware the news line leeches blood-sucking, belching out their sedating platitudes. Don't be seduced by their fetid hatreds. Love loud into the teeth of the tabloid guns. Let your eyes mirror their instability in your vulnerability. It's vulnerability that changes things. For truly all the fighting dead will tell you that the bullets of death are blanks. So picture six is called After Bruegel's Wedding Dance in the Open Air. I remember in, in seeing a lot of Bruegel's paintings. Well, there are, there's Bruegel the Elder, Bruegel the Younger. There's a whole sort of Bruegel um, industry almost. Uh, <clears throat> and they, they churned out a lot of paintings. But they were fascinated by peasants and and learned how to paint ordinary people it was the art of the ordinary and I loved it I was really taken with it at the time and and then when I've come back to trying to rewrite these I've I've reinquated myself with Bruegel and and one particular painting which is called Wedding Dance in the Open Air and Bruegel the Elder and the Younger both paint this scene um if you get a chance to google it it's really worth looking at it's a real celebration of ordinary people so after Bruegel's wedding dance in the open air, their privacy is trespassing prosecution. Their privacy is trespassing prosecution. Our lives should be common land, not stolen and shared spoils. A poet cannot slumber in their easy sleeping. Angry discontent should be the seditious caffeine that keeps them awake in the night to disturb the free trade settlers and shatter their ministerial complacency. There is an invitation to an intricate reel like Bruegel's wedding dance in the open air that should sound in poetry's stanzas. With all the swishing browns and flying boots, the bridal crown, the trodden soil. Joy dilating pupils staring out the nocturne and hurling grappling irons of love at a future where the beat is of our own feet. Knowing that somewhere in that conjugal night there is a star that shines with a light that is of our own splendid making. At the time I was working for tenants groups across the top of the Isle of Dogs, which is, if you look at the River Thames, it creates a tongue at one point, and that's called the Isle of Dogs, and it was where all the docks were, very working class area. When I got to uh, East London, it was very run down and there was a big sign saying, welcome to the Isle of Dogs and someone had written above it, you're welcome to the Isle of Dogs. And um, as you left on the wall, it said, remember, no GPs, no doctors live on this island. And then, of course, Canary Wharf came along uh, and all the planning uh, regulations were abandoned and they built this huge uh, development <clears throat> without really affecting, apart from badly, the lives of the ordinary people who lived there. Uh, their lives were, were, were turned into a nightmare with a building site all around them. The air quality was dreadful. And I just felt, you know, the free trade settlers, it was all done in the name of free trade, and, and, and that we should shatter that ministerial complacency, and we did, we really did, we helped the people there fight for a much better deal 
I work with a wonderful sister called Sister Christine from the Faithful Companions of Jesus. Um, we were accused of being all sorts of seditious communists and left-wing activists. But all really she was doing and I was doing was saying, there are people already living here and you need to pay attention to them. And And I remember the building of Canary Wharf blocked out the television signal to a whole swathe of people. All they could get was Channel 4. And they were furious. And we had a public meeting with 500 people. Before that, we'd had about 30. But this was the last straw. The only thing they could do was watch the telly, and now that was taken away from them. The BBC were having kittens because they're meant to guarantee the signal. But because they changed or got rid of the planning regulations, no one had realised that the, the Canary Wharf Tower would block out the signal. And, and I was really struck by the humour and the pluck and the spirit and the multiracial unity of the people coming out to ask questions about what the hell was going on. And it just took me to that Bruegel's open air, a wedding dance in the open air. Um, the people that are dancing, you know, their bellies are hanging out and, and they're just having a great time. And the bride's there at the back with her crown on. It's just a brilliant celebration of what it means to be an ordinary person. That, you know, that, that like Mandelstam says, you know, what shall I do with the body I've been given? Well, they knew exactly what to do. They had a great time and knew how to celebrate with all the swishing browns and flying boots, the bridal crown, the trodden soil, joy dilating pupils staring out the nocturne and hurling grappling irons of love at a future where the beat is of our own feet. People just wanted to have some sense of control over where they lived, knowing that somewhere in that conjugal night there is a star that shines with a light that is of our own splendid making. It's what we all want, I think, to feel that we that we are the masters of our own destiny, that that we are, we matter, that we are part of a bigger whole and that we are important. So the next painting uh, imagines a Russian-style theatre. Uh, that's the title, a Russian-style theatre. To the dread last scene, she plays her part. Lines may slip from her, under the critic's narrow stare, but the prompt remains backstage unaffected. The meaning of the play is not hiding beneath the trapdoor to be dragged out and questioned. It runs deep in her presence on the stage as she gives her body to the playwright's lines. Intention and voice inseparable and the deaf scene shifters cannot disarm the truth as the purple curtain's lush velvet lifts on the subversion of plays from the resistance. Just had this image, uh, Pasternak has a poem imagining these Hamlet coming out on the stage and and this is him taking centre stage in, in, in Russia and how dangerous that is. And I just thought of this woman on a stage and the... the the playwright is is the muse, the poetic inspiration, um, and that the prompt is 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 this powerful inner truthfulness, and it's unaffected, and and you can't drag out the meaning of the play 
and and interrogate it because it's in her f- presence in her body. When you see a really good play and a really good actor, they embody the thing that they're playing. It, it, it's not the words; it's how how they they you experience their incarnate body. Um, intention and voice inseparable, and the deaf scene shifters cannot disarm the truth. The 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 voices and the powers that be can't disarm the truth and the lush velvet lifts on the subversion of plays from the resistance that's where the voices come from from the resistance the resistance is the resistance of love it's it's that getting in touch with what you truly love what what truly makes you who you are that makes you able to see through the mangling of language and the arguing that black is white or bad is good or evil is right. It's it's that resistance that comes from love, the, the deep-seated appreciation of, of the human, of real emotion, real gentleness, real vulnerability, that, that makes us able to resist um, and, and to be clear-minded, clear-sighted in the face of confusion. The last poem, the last portrait, is a portrait of poets in a time of terror. Hope's adrenaline fuels our writing, a welding torch fusing vision and despair. A tongue to dumbness, blunting violence. As vocal cords twang and snap, string by string other throats will catch the notes. Too many phrases to be silenced, an escalating melody. Disappearance is a loud hailer announcing change, as we gamble our anxious voices against blinkered indifference. Ours hurt and roar, There's a callous veneer covering cowardice. It is clear the self-inflicted wounds of poets give them the look of fools. But fools have kept kings sane on wasted heaths, clowns pale white faces, weeping tears that scald sense into the skin of history, tattooing painful truths with their lacrimose ink. As to my palate, I add yellow ochre to sing of the sun's flower in the midnight sky's Prussian blue and reclaim the darkness. So let us proclaim the mystery of faith, faith in the uncertainty of our eggshell life. So let us proclaim the mystery of faith, Faith in the uncertainty of our eggshell life. It may seem a strange ending to the cycle of portraits and pictures. So let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Faith in the uncertainty of our eggshell life. Eggshell life. I have chickens and when I go up to the run in the morning... Uh, and collect the eggs. I'm always struck by 
how hard and firm the shell is, protecting the yolk and the albumin inside, and yet if they bash together too hard in my pocket, they smash. It's a great metaphor for me for we seem quite robust as human beings, quite firm, and yet you only have to hit us a little bit and we're broken and vulnerable and in need of care and kindness. And this time being the time of Passover, on the Passover plate, the Seder dish, one of the symbols, as well as the bitter herbs and the haraset, which symbolises the mortar that was that was used to build the pyramids, that was the beginning of the exodus, is an egg, because it's a symbol of life. In the Catholic Mass, the first lines of that verse, so let us proclaim the mystery of faith, and the people say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. I learned in my 20s what that meant theologically and it's you know it's an affirmation of the creed of the christian church for me now as a 60 year old it's an affirmation of something different the universality of death of brokenness of vulnerability but that that's not the whole story christ has died christ is risen christ will come again that the story also contains within it that when you open yourself to that vulnerability, to that pain and challenge and change, anxiety, depression, when you traverse those night sea journeys, there is not an end, but a new beginning, a new restoration with all the vulnerabilities of what you've been through, but a new way of seeing the world. A truthfulness, an inner ring of veracity about what life truly is and how we should value and care for one another. I've finished the cycle of poems with another quote from Chernobyl. Valery Legasov the government scientist, says, Where I once would fear the cost of truth, now I only ask, what is the cost of lies? Valery Legasov killed himself exactly two years to the time and date of the Chernobyl disaster. Apparently he recorded his memoirs on tapes and they were passed clandestinely throughout the Soviet Union. The Chernobyl disaster was certainly the beginning of the end of that particular form of lies. I think that poetry and bravery can give us a, a way into that mystery of faith, the uncertainty of our eggshell life, one practice that I'd offer at the end of this podcast for all of us is to read a poem a day. You can find lots of great collections of poetry, of um, <clears throat> compilations of poetry that 
offer you different people's experience of ordinary life. I think poets are the bravest people in some ways because they don't have to toe a particular line. They don't have to uh, push an ideology. They just have to live on the edge of life and tell us what it feels like so that we can assert, yes, that is it. That is the mystery of faith. So read a poem a day out loud. Try and find somewhere where you can be on your own. Read it out loud. Read it more than once. Read the words until the words become part of you. And I would offer and suggest that in the times that we live in, where once we might fear the cost of the truth, we now can only ask ourselves, what is the cost of lies? That this would be a practice that would inure us against the corrosive culture around us and give us the courage to live our own version of the truth, our own veracity, our own pool of truthfulness. So thanks for listening and I look forward to the next podcast where I hopefully will be interviewing someone quite close to me about humour and laughter and how that is a real way of uh, helping with our mental health and just to make us better humans. So I'm Adrian Scott, I'm the Anxious Poet. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast.